If you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, please turn with me this morning to Isaiah 42. So we're actually going to look at Isaiah 42 through a portion of 43, but we're not going to read it all at once. We're going to kind of look at this in chunks because there's a lot here. And this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Uh, I read this a few years ago and it just blew my mind because I think I saw my own heart here uh, a little too clearly, perhaps. But that's what we're going to do. We're going to look this morning at a story that I think captures the human heart in three scenes. And the first scene is going to start with Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 6. This is God's word for his people this morning. Listen to this. Then all the commanders of the forces... And Johanan, the son of Kareah, and Jezaniah, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you, and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left with but a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing we should do. Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I've heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request, and whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word which the Lord your God sends to us. Whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us. When we obey the voice of the Lord our God. That's scene one of what we're looking at this morning. Let me give you some background information as to what has just happened here in ancient Israel. Jerusalem has just been overthrown by the Babylonians. Uh, the Babylonians have come. This happened at sort of the end of the 6th century, 586 uh, BC. Uh, Jerusalem has been overthrown. The temple has been burned and uh, Babylon has carted off uh, tons of God's people and taken them back into exile, taken them back to Babylon. And a few people remained in the land. There were some soldiers uh, who were uh, Jewish soldiers that had fled. There were some people that had just been released, among them uh, Jeremiah, the prophet. But what has just happened in the immediately preceding chapter is that the Babylonian-appointed governor of the region of Israel has just been assassinated by rogue Judean troops. And the people are now contemplating something. They're trying to figure out how to get out of this mess. And they are contemplating going to Egypt for protection. That's their good idea. That's their big idea. We're going to go to Egypt and Egypt will protect us. And so what you see there is the people decide to come to Jeremiah and ask him what they should do. So in verses 1 to 3, that's what they do. They come to Jeremiah in a mess of their own making and they say to Jeremiah, go and ask God what we should do. They realize they need a word from God. Jeremiah tells them in verse 4, okay, I'll do it. I will pray to the Lord. I will ask God and I will tell you everything he says, whether it's easy or hard, whether it's good or bad. I'll tell you everything God says for you to do. 
In verses 5 and 6, the people feeling quite confident in their abilities, quite confident in their character, make a grandiose promise. They say, we will do whatever God says. Whether it's good or bad, we will obey it. And at this point, you're probably thinking, this sounds pretty good. Like these people sound like they are actually interested in doing what God requires of them, what God wants from them. It sounds good, but we'll find out momentarily that it only sounds good on the surface. You see, friends, sometimes when we're in a mess of our own making, we want the mess to end more than we actually want to be obedient. I think this is really an interesting opening to this entire passage. And part of the reason is I think we all start in the same position somewhat. We all start in a mess of our own making. We looked at that last week. We looked at Genesis 3 and we talked about sin and what sin does. And we talked about how sin is really like an addiction. This compulsive behavior that arises in us because our hearts have gotten miswired. We have distorted loves. We like and love the wrong things. And our own best thinking is what got us in this mess. Adam and Eve tried to go their own way. We're not better than them. We would have done the same thing, probably even faster. We also try to go our own way, and it just doesn't work. It makes a mess. We see it in our own lives over and over again when we try to do life our way. It makes a mess. And it is an unchangeable biblical truth that messy things are messy. We make a mess. And not only that, we've made a mess that we can't think our own way out of. That our own best thinking is what got us there. We're not going to suddenly have better ideas that are going to get us out of this mess we have made. We are in the same position as the Jews here are in Jeremiah 42. We need a word from God. That takes us to scene two here in the story. We're going to look at verses 7 to 17 here. I'm going to read them to us. The story unfolds. At the end of ten days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he summoned Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the commanders of the forces who were with him, and all the people, from the least to the greatest. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. He says this, If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your own land. But if you say... We will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God and saying, No, we will go to the land of Egypt where we won't see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread and we will dwell there. Then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. All the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to live there shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. They shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I will bring upon them. Jeremiah has heard from the Lord. And true to his word, he delivers to the people everything that God told him to say. And he summons everyone together, it says, from the least to the greatest. That means children up through military commanders, all of them together. And he says in verse 9 to 17, what God has told them is stay here. Stay here. God will bless you. God is promising to relent of the disaster that he brought upon you. But if you go to Egypt, if you ignore what God is telling you to do and go to Egypt, Babylon will kill you there. These are hard words for God's people. God says to them, stay here, I will protect you. Think of what they've just gone through. Babylon has just sacked Jerusalem. The temple of God has just been burned by the troops of King Nebuchadnezzar. They have no experience of God protecting them from Babylon. All they see is that God has not protected them from Babylon. But now God is saying, if you stay here, I'll protect you. Don't go to apparent safety in Egypt. I think it's important for us to think about what Egypt represents to God's people. Because they're thinking of Egypt as a strong military, and they can maybe tuck in behind a strong military, and that will give them safety. But God is not forbidding them from making a military alliance. Egypt represents bondage for God's people. Egypt represents captivity. Egypt represents slavery. Egypt is the very thing from which God had already rescued and redeemed his people. That's the whole story of the Exodus is God bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. What Jeremiah is saying here is there is only death for you in Egypt. I think more broadly, what we see happening in these verses is that God is telling his people not to look for comfort and security in the things from which he has rescued them. God is telling us not to go look for comfort and security and meaning and identity and purpose in the things from which he has already delivered us. The, the Israelites at this point are addicted to Egypt. We are addicted to sin. And in both cases, there's no life in those addictions. There is only death there. As one alcoholic put it, you find that the bottom of a bottle is always dry. Friends, 
We are tempted to find comfort and security in the things from which God has rescued us. We do this all the time. Three ways I can think of quickly that we do this. One of the things the gospel frees us from is the need to build an identity for ourselves. The gospel says, in Christ you are beloved children of the heavenly father, with whom he is well pleased. And yet, we so often flee back to our pre-Christ patterns of trying to craft an identity for ourselves. And we do that in things like our achievement, thinking that if we could just get a little farther ahead in our career or in the work that God has given us, then maybe finally we will feel significance and purpose. But it's never enough. Or maybe we think that if we can just be more obedient, if we're just sort of better behaved people, we will have this identity then as sort of like good Christians. But friends, we can never be good enough. We will always feel like imposters if we try to live our lives that way. Or your family. Maybe you're thinking you're going to find identity in how amazing and smart and accomplished your children are. And you're going to crush them under the weight of your expectations if you do that. We don't have to build an identity. And we so often try to run back to building an identity when things are hard. God has delivered us from the need to do that. And there's only death when we try to go back to it. I remember seeing this in stark relief uh, a number of years ago. Uh, There was a a fighter uh, in the uh, Ultimate Fighting Championship, UFC, uh, MMA, uh, who was one of the highest touted fighters uh, at the time. Uh, And this fighter had a a big uh, match coming up that was for the title, uh, defending uh, her title. Uh, Her name was Ronda Rousey. And uh, what happened was Ronda Rousey got just destroyed in the first round. She was the most dominant fighter in her bracket of UFC, and she just got demolished in the first round. I saw an interview with her after this, and you were watching identity crumble around her. She was weeping, and she said, who am I if I'm not this? Friends, that's what it looks like when we are fleeing back to building an identity for ourselves. But friends, we're not invited ever to go and seek comfort, to go and seek purpose, to go and seek security or identity in the things from which the gospel has rescued us. We need a word from God, but God does not promise to say easy and affirming things to us. We need a word from God, but God's word is often hard. That takes us to the third scene in our passage this morning. Jump over to chapter 43. We're going to look at verses 1 to 7. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, 
You are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. So Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the commanders of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they had been driven, the men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person who Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch the son of Neriah. And they came into the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And they arrived at Tapanes. God's people respond. God has spoken to them. He has told them explicitly what he wants them to do. Stay in the land, and I will protect you. And their response to that is, Jeremiah, you're a liar. God didn't say that. God wouldn't say that. Instead, your friend Baruch is actually working for Babylon. And he has convinced you to get on the dole as well. And what you are trying to do is get us killed or even exiled to Babylon. And verses 4 to 7 tell us that the commanders, these people who have responded this way, pack up all the people. They pack up the entire remnant of Judah, including Jeremiah. They kidnap Jeremiah and take him to Egypt as well. All of the grandiose promises of obedience come to nothing. Everything they promised they would do, they did the exact opposite of. And they run for security to the very thing from which God had freed them, Egypt. Friends, if that's not a picture of addiction, I don't know what it is. And the problem is simply this. I see my own heart here so clearly and so profoundly. Like, Lord, I will do whatever you say. What? Except for that. Like, not that. Egypt is the bad relationship. God's people just can't quit. It's why one author has called addiction a banquet in the grave. Addiction is chaining ourselves, feasting upon things that lead to death. And it's hard because we do see our own hearts in this passage, but it's helpful because this reveals some profound things about the nature of our lives in Christ. For example, this shows us beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Christian life is not fundamentally about resolving to do better. That doesn't cut it. The gospel is not offering us a sin management program that will just make the bad things that lead to death slightly more manageable in our lives. We need something more radical. Because fixing sin is not just a matter of knowing more. Fixing sin is not just a matter of trying harder. They have a word from God and not even knowing the right thing to do enables them to do it. 
Calling attention to sin doesn't enable us to resist it. And the reason for that is simple. We love it. We love our sin. Paul tells us in the New Testament over and over again that we are dead to sin. Sin has no power over us in Christ, so why do we sin? Because we want to. We like it. We love the way it feels. We love what we think it will do for us. All of the sins that you struggle with again and again, you struggle with again and again because you love. You like what those sins do. Think about them. What are those sins you fall into over and over again that drive you to shame and frustration and, and make you think every time you do it, like that was the last time? What is it? What is that sin? Is it, is it overeating? Is it gossip? Is it pornography? Is it pride? Is it feeling contempt for other people or feeling greed? Or is it the idols you return to time and time again? Idols that you think maybe this time will finally bring what they promise. Friends, you don't lack knowledge. You don't lack knowledge. You don't lack an understanding of what God wants from you. You see, what this passage reminds us and shows us ultimately is that it's not enough merely to hear from God because we need new hearts. We need new hearts. Jeremiah's prophecy came directly from God. It was unable to change their hearts. And if that's the case, what hope do we have, us addicts, to sin? We need a word from God, but we need a word from God that is able to change our hearts. We need a prophet who is better than Jeremiah. Friends, we need Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Jeremiah. Jesus is the true and better prophet from God. And what's amazing about Jesus is he not only brings a word from God, he is the word from God. He is both the messenger and the message. And what Jesus does is he comes and he speaks a hard word to us. The gospel begins as bad news. The bad news that we're not just slow and need to be fast. We're not just weak and need to be strong. We're not just bad and need to be good. We are enslaved and need to be set free. We are addicted and need to be rescued. We are dead and need to be made alive. Jesus unmasks sin in all of its grotesque enormity, but... Jesus also gives us the new hearts that we need. In Christ, we are getting hearts that are unlearning our addiction to sin, hearts that he is teaching to love God and others and teaching to love and delight in what is true and good and beautiful. In his death and resurrection, Jesus is the prophet we need. 
Jesus is the one who changes our hearts and who breaks our addiction to sin and death. Jesus is the true and better word from God. It's good news. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that our hearts in some ways are on full display in these verses. That we so often think that we can just resolve to do better. And then when we hear what you require of us, we turn away again to sin. We build identities, we cling to idols, we go back and medicate ourselves in ways that you've told us we don't have to do. In fact, you've told us are actually destructive. Father, we pray this morning that you would unmask our sin. We pray that you would show us our hearts. We pray that you would speak a hard word to us. That you would help us see our sin for what it is. To see it truly. And that you would deliver us from it. Father, we pray and thank you that you have sent Christ to us. And that Christ lived a life that we could not live. And he died a death that we could not die. And he has rescued us from sin. He has rescued us from death. And Lord, anchor us in that truth. Let us feel the goodness of this gospel. Let us see the goodness of your grace. Father, be at work in us. And even now as we come to your table, Lord, we pray that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to transform us, to anchor us in Christ and his work on our behalf. Father, change us, change our hearts, break our addiction to sin, we pray in Christ's name, amen.